The Ottawa Valley has a long association with the Irish going back before the famine uh, and also in the famine. So before the famine, of course, we all know that the Rideau Canal was built 1826-1832 and prior to that the Lachine Canal. But then the railways started to open up and as they opened up, uh, many Irish property owners and wealthy had an interest in the, the railways and one of those was Lord Fitzwilliam of Culloden. And when the famine hit Ireland, uh, Lord Fitzwilliam chose to send some of his tenants to Canada and it allowed him to provide workers for the development of the, radio, uh, the, the railway at the time. So he was solving two problems at the one time. And Sharing some of that heritage and bringing it all together, the, the Railway Museum of Eastern Ontario is located in Spitz Falls and I have John Weir with me here and John was one of the people very early on that was instrumental in helping the establishment of this museum. Welcome John and thank you. Well, thank you. So a background to the trains and this part of how important they were, the development of the train. Uh, and how Smith's Falls became a focal point for the railways. Yes, well, uh, it goes back to the early 1850s uh, and uh, Brockville. Yeah. And the uh, uh, back in those days, a lot of the interests in building railways were local in, in nature. Various municipalities would connect their towns or whatever by rail. It was uh, you know, an innovative way of doing it. And uh, so we have the Brockville and Ottawa. That's the first line from Brockville North. Uh, they completed the line through Smith Falls as far as Almont, about uh, 25 miles north of here, uh, in 1859 with a branch line also to Perth, uh, about 12 miles west of Smith Falls. The, the line then uh, lay dormant for about a few years, about 1867, they proceeded then further north toward the Ottawa River, the idea being to get uh, commerce off the river in the form of timber and, uh, and lumber and uh, take it directly south year-round then to, uh, to the St. Lawrence and to the American uh, uh, you know, interests uh, south of the river. They were building a railroad up to, to Brockville from the American side as well. So it was all coming together from that point of view. So, John, in towns taking an initiative in order to create infrastructure, who was financing these? Was this private enterprise um, developers or was it the government in some way or was it partnerships? It was like a partnership as I understand it. The uh, entrepreneurs, the private entrepreneurs would, uh, would petition the various municipalities, the towns and the townships in between to subscribe to their venture. It was in everybody's interest to work together in those days as well, and so yes, I think you'd have to say it was a, a partnership, so public-private. So yeah, what we hear now is an innovative idea of a public-private partnership. That's correct, yes. It's, it was something that, uh, as I understand it, it worked well back then as well. Eh? So prior to the establishment of the railways, again, trade was very much dependent upon the waterways and then on what would have been horse and cart. That's correct. The waterways, of course, were limited by the fact that they could only be navigated in the uh, summertime. So you had, once the cold weather came, uh, uh, the freeze up, uh, everything came to a stop as far as transportation uh, 
by by uh, water was concerned. The roads in those days, of course, were also just nothing more than trails through the bush uh, that would accommodate the the high wheels of the horse and buggies. That's why the wheels were made such so high they could go over the the bumps without getting stuck, right? Or the uh, or the uh, the soft spots. Uh, so the railways were tremendous innovation from that point of view. They were year round. They tended to be, uh, you know, faster and uh, well, they were a lot quicker means of and, getting there. And predictable, I suppose. And predictable, yes, even in steam days. So, so then, you know, why Smith's Falls? How did Smith's Falls become as important as it did in the railway grid? Well, uh, I think you would have to say that uh, it. It evolved because of the of the location of Smith Falls. I guess that's generally the case. But the railway's first uh, division point, if you like, or uh, uh, junction was actually a curling place about uh, close to 20 miles north of here. Uh, the reason being, it was closer to the Ottawa uh, destination, the Ottawa River destination. A branch line was built from Carlton Place to Ottawa in uh, the early 1970s, but then the important development about 1884 was the uh, the development of a railroad from Toronto to Ottawa uh, through Smith Falls. It arrived from Toronto uh, here in Smith Falls 1884, and three years later, then the they continued the line right through the Montreal, a fairly straight line, uh, competing then directly with the Grand Trunk Railway, which had already been uh, built from Toronto to Montreal through Brockville, uh, completed about 1860. Okay. So this didn't happen until about you know close to 25 years, or, you know, uh, yeah, about 25 years later, uh, and that's why Smith Falls became the terminal. Uh, as opposed to Carlton Place because it was on the crossroads, Montreal, Toronto, Brockville, Ottawa River okay. Junction at that point. Now at that time as well we're looking at steam engines uh, so there would have been a need for coal yards and also for water to uh, replenish in order to keep the, the tracks going. What roughly was the range of a train? Well it would depend on the uh, a number of factors. One would be the tonnage they were hauling, and the you know the type of engine it was. A low wheel as opposed to high wheelers, they get better mileage. But generally speaking, a heavy train they might have to take water every 40 or 50 miles. Okay. Again, depending on the capacity of the water tank, and uh, they would have to take on coal then uh, every 100 miles, or if it was a heavy train and delays and so on, they might have to take it on more often. So they had these coaling and watering towers, and at every strategic locations along the line and also a division point or division points emerged in terms of mileage about every 125 miles as a rule of thumb because that was in later years that was the about as far as they could go then with uh, the steamer between coal at least between coal refueling but also they had to clean the uh, the grates and, and generally lubricate the engine every 125 miles in steam days, okay. Uh, particularly in the in the older days when they uh, had, uh, you know, not as well advanced uh, lubrication methods. So the speeds then that a train might get to, on um, with an average load, and not not a heavy load, and not a light load. The speed would be uh, 
surprisingly quite high in the early days. You know, uh, 120 kilometers an hour was quite uh, normal around the turn of the century with passenger trains. Okay. Uh, that would be 60 miles an hour. And even, uh, you know, 100 years ago, uh, you know, uh, on, the, on the Grand Trunk, uh, Toronto-Montreal line, straight line, depending a lot on the track, what they call track speed, if it allowed for higher than that, they were quite capable of doing a higher speed than that. You know, the steamers were, uh, they never lacked for power or speed, even in the early days. Okay. Uh, particularly speed, you know, depending on the size of the rifle, they could certainly uh, turn out the speed. So, given that they would have to refuel for coal every 100 kilometers or so, the coal then had to be brought from somewhere, so there would have been a freight delivery of coal along the lines as well, so the, it was doing two purposes, delivering the coal but also delivering it to continue with the operation. That's correct, yeah, they, uh, early on the, there was, uh, a lot of the coal was brought up to Montreal from the U.S. down uh, Bimington, uh, New York and down in, uh, in Pennsylvania by way of Montreal and uh, it was used not only for households that were on the coal standard uh, but also for the uh, use of the steam locomotives yes coal became the the standard fuel quite early Uh, before that of course they burned wood in the the early days Uh, not sure exactly when you say the transition took place it was a gradual process I guess so then in linking of towns like where we are here at the Railway Museum of Eastern Ontario in Smiths Falls, there's tracks outside the door and I presume would they have been the ones that would have been connecting Smiths Falls to Perth? The ones outside the door, as you mentioned, uh, were uh, not uh, laid until 1914 and there was a, a privately owned company competing with the Canadian Pacific Railway in Western Canada uh, which was very successful in that, in that particular time in history uh, out west. They were good competition with the CP. They were doing well. They decided to come east and uh, make their system uh, a transcontinental system. So uh, in 1914, they completed this line outside the door, so to speak, uh, between Toronto and Montreal. It was the shortest line between Toronto, uh, yes, Toronto and Ottawa, it came right uh, sort of a beeline from Toronto, left the double track uh, Grand Trunk line, uh, or CN line now, between Ottawa and Montreal at, at a place called Napanee, mm-hmm. and came directly then toward Ottawa. But in 1940, it was truncated back to Ottawa, but remained then until 1978 as a through line between Toronto and Ottawa. It had a lot of competition with Canadian Pacific kind of across town here in Smith Falls. It was the big, the big road here in, in Smith Falls, generally considered to be a Canadian Pacific town. This was like a branch line uh, in there uh, by comparison, uh, even what was a main line between Toronto and, uh, and Ottawa up until 1970, as I mentioned. It never saw as much traffic as the CPR had, uh, but it did have its, uh, its share of traffic. and. Uh, it was a well-engineered line as well. It comes down through part of the Canadian Shield, which is pretty rough country, but a lot of high cuts and fills, and uh, so it rated right up there with other railroads as far as being a, a main line. So to answer your question, that's, that's where it went, and that's when it came through from the falls. So you mentioned uh, Canadian Pacific, like, and that there were competing lines. So even back in the early days, you had Canadian Pacific, and there were other companies. 
Well, the, the first uh, company of any size, uh, without going in a lot of these uh, ones that I mentioned to you between one town and another, and there were a lot of them pretty, you know, pre-Canadian uh, Pacific days. Uh, the first one of any size was the Grand Trunk Railway. It was uh, a, a company that was uh, uh, dependent on, on English money. It was built with English capital. Uh, it was uh, managed from England. They completed a line between uh, Montreal and Toronto uh, by 1860. Well-engineered line. The British had very high standards of engineering. Unlike the American and, and uh, you know the North American uh, standards to to build a line from one municipality to the other and then improve it as as a traffic increase, the British tended to to build their lines capable of uh, with yes, with a permanent uh, thing and then hope the traffic would come along. Anyhow, again, that was the uh, the, the first uh, major uh, line in this part of the country. And in fact, in any part of the country at that time, they. Uh, Completed as I mentioned in 1860. Uh, eventually, then they built to to Windsor. Uh, in the next, you know, ten years after that. So then, John, the when you mentioned the British um, influence and that it was a British firm were uh, or British money, that would have been probably then where the likes of Lord Fitzwilliam would have been invested, so as that his uh, interest and. Sending workers over uh, at the time of the famine in Ireland would have been aligned with that development. I would have to think so. Yes, I think it would be very, uh, very uh, timely to suggest that at least, and uh, because they did hire uh, a lot of a lot of labour involved in those days, they had it pretty good in the sense that they had access to build a line along uh, the St. Lawrence and the River and Lake Ontario, which is fairly important in the sense that there were no other no roads to get the materials in there and they brought them in by uh, by water as far as they could okay and of course that line paralleled uh, the St. Lawrence and, and Lake Ontario right to Toronto so that was another advantage and one of the reasons why they I guess they could build a better quality uh, line but all the rails came from England and most of the funding as well there were, there were likely other sources but that was where it was uh, where it emanated from so then the Culloden estate in County Wicklow in Ireland where Lord Fitzwilliam had his property and he um, sent I think it was six or seven thousand of his tenants over to Canada and up the Ottawa Valley where they ended up working on the railway line construction here. Did Smith's Falls at some stage develop then also into an engineering hub or was it a, a headquarters for any of the lines? Well the brothel in Ottawa did certainly contribute to employment and once Smith Falls came into its own in about 1885 uh, then the employment here would, would increase quite a bit. Uh, I think, though, the, the employment in Smith Falls uh, continued to uh, increase uh, right up into the 1920s when it probably reached its uh, zenith. And, of course, there was a lot more traffic uh, available in 1920 than there was in 1884, and that, that would contribute a lot to the employment as well. Eh? Because the, uh, by that time, the, the Canadian Pacific then was a transcontinental, 1885, and, uh, and a lot of grain was moving through here on the CP as well as timber and the resources of the country and then of course a lot of a lot of supplies going west to develop the west you know and uh, and uh, 
So, so John, the families then are the workers who would have been involved in building the rail. When the rail opened, they probably would have settled in the area, bought land, uh, those that didn't stay working on the railway, established farms, adopted the area as their own. Yes, I would assume that's what, what would have happened, uh, depending on their uh, opportunities or inclinations. They, uh, they probably ended up uh, buying farms, as you suggest, and uh, uh, you know, that was the, the, big, the big source of, uh, of, uh, of a livelihood back in those days, the rural community, the farmers, and uh, the towns were probably uh, the result of the farming community that was where they uh, got their uh, their uh, grain uh, milled and so on and normally these towns were built on the uh, on the waters where they where they'd have water power to grind the, the grain mm-hmm. uh, and make flour and so on so yeah the a lot of them did end up in the farms because that was uh, basically the 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 economy the rural based economy uh, was was basically the uh, the underpinning of the of the development, you know, but the railways, of course, uh, the fam- as they grew up, uh, they all couldn't be farmers, yeah. and the railways would naturally uh, employ a lot of uh, guys off the farm, young guys. And so, so the building we're in, what would have been the station house, the the railways, the uh, where you bought your ticket, you got on the train, it was the hub. When was this uh, building built? It was completed in 1914 when they completed the railway from Toronto to Montreal. Right. And uh, you can see they built it to last 100 years. They didn't envisage uh, air, air travel. Uh, there were a few automobiles around uh, Smith Falls here, but uh, to drive any distance was impossible or next to impossible in those days. The railway was the only way to go. Right. And you can see it reflected here in the architecture of the station and the general layout. If you look down over here, uh, this uh, our gift shop now was a ladies' waiting room. That was a, a special feature in the old days. Uh, the ladies uh, would alight from in the port cochere there from the horse and buggy or the Model T, and they would come in through their own separate door and use their own uh, their own quarters there with uh, for their uh, uh, out of general respect for the children and so on. And uh, that's the way it was done. And uh, so they. You know, being the main the main uh, uh, street of transportation, they had to build it accordingly. You have to remember too that everyone had to travel by rail in those days. Heads of corporations, po- local politicians, everyone had to take the train. So they demanded a little bit more elaborate surroundings than the than the average guy who just wanted to get from A to B. If right. You know what I'm right. To say. Indeed. Indeed. Um, so. Likewise, the carriages on the train was reflective of that. A bit like airline travel today, That's where you have the lounges and you have first class travel and you exactly. have the rest of us down the back. That's correct. The, the, uh, the sleeping cars came on or were developed early on and uh, Grand Trunk, in fact, was one of the early Grand Trunks to uh, Rock Latron. was one of the early uh, proponents of sleeping cars. Uh, they meant, uh, you know, sleeping car on a train meant that you could get on uh, uh, the night before type thing and be in the, at your destination the next morning. You made uh, use of the uh, travel time mm-hmm. uh, when you got your rest. And as you mentioned, uh, again, everyone had to go by rail. Time was important to a lot of people. And uh, they demanded uh, that they get a good night's sleep in comfortable beds. And that's the way uh, it all sort of came together. Interesting point, and it's... It was, uh, there were 
uh, it was like a, it was a, a crossover uh, situation. But in 1920, uh, the Pullman Company in the U.S. was the largest uh, manager and builder of sleeping cars uh, at the time. They represented the largest hotel chain in North America. And on every given night, any given night, there would be, they would sleep upwards to 100,000 people per night in 10,000 sleeping cars, which is sort of hard to, uh, hard to believe in this day and age. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, that was the way to go. And uh, uh, now, Pullman was, was more prominent in the U.S., but they also, a lot of their trains running into Canada had Pullman cars on them, so right. Pullman was up here as well. The railways owned a lot of... Uh, sleeping cars as well, particularly in Canada, CN and CP and Grand Trunk before them, Canadian Northern, that built this line through here, uh, had their own sleeping cars as well. And in fact, we have one here today from the Canadian Northern in the, uh, in the, uh, the dental car that we have. It was 40 years as a, as a sleeping car built for the Canadian Northern by a U.S. company uh, at the time. And coming back to the building we're in here, um, there was, um, it was under threat and you got involved in making sure that it was preserved. Yes, we, uh, we got wind of the fact that it was going to be demolished about uh, 1980, I guess you would say. Uh, we had quite a battle. We, were an un we formed a, a loosely knit group uh, headed by a local councillor who really got the word and, and really... Uh, did a lot of the early uh, early work in the person of Bill Surf, uh, but he uh, he got uh, a group of us together, uh, people interested in in the uh, in the venture. We of course were not able to deal directly with the railways; we're an unknown quantity, and that that, that made a bit of sense. Uh, there was also a pecking order; they had to they had to go to the town first and, uh, and then utilities and so on uh, before they would deal with us. But eventually we were able to, uh, to uh, get access to the property about, 19, uh, about 1984, maybe 83, 84, I think it might be, uh, that we're able to gain access here. We're able to buy the station for a dollar and rent a, a, an acre of land underneath uh, for a fairly sizable sum. Very unsatisfactory situation in the sense that it wasn't permanent. Mm -hmm. But eventually we were able to, uh, after the land was sold, a real estate operator here in, in Sioux Falls, we were able to make a deal with him and purchase five acres. We already owned the station. Then we have a, had a permanence. But we still lacked credibility. We had to, we aligned ourselves with the Canadian Railway Historical Association. They accepted our credibility. And uh, that helped a bit. And we also got the station then a few years later uh, designated as an historical site. And all of these things were necessary in order to to give us that assurance that we could, uh, you know, get a, a charitable status and, and so on in order to uh, to access uh, grants as they became available. Mm -hmm. So we were able to do that uh, periodically. We were able to access grants, and in that sense, we were able to bring this building back to where it, uh, you know, what you're seeing here today, pretty well. Uh, restored as to the original. When we got it, it was in rather bad shape, leaking badly. Uh, the floor was in bad shape. But we, uh, through these grants and through a lot of donations from individuals, we were able to bring it back to what you're seeing here today. Uh, and this is pretty well uh, the way it existed. There was nothing left that we were able to match 
the fabric on the walls, for example, the, tex the textured uh, material there, uh, pretty well identical. Of what is here today, were you able to um, retain much of the original, or did you have to replace the last? So the original were able to retain. Yeah, that's a good question. These were on the floor. Uh, they'd already started the demolition. The, the polisters here, and uh, so we were able to put them back. Uh, all of the trim around the windows. This is Edwardian style architecture, I guess, uh, or, or parts of it at least. And uh, although the station was quite unique in its design. So the trim around the windows was, uh, for the most part, uh, still in place, and uh, it was just a matter of refinishing a lot of this stuff, and uh, and the doors are all original and so on. So yes, you'd have to say it's it's 95% original. It's uh, you know from that point of view. The design and the quality of the whole structure uh, is indicative, I suppose, of what was not just here, but I know in Ireland even ourselves, where we would see um, stations, and but they were always built to a very high standard. They were. In fact, it paid off here, because even though the, the building uh, was leaking, uh, and there was water in the basement and so on that used to freeze and expand in the wintertime, the foundation was so solid of solid cement that it never compromised the, the uh, integrity of the station from that point of view. It's right. a very sound foundation it's on. You know, the building itself uh, is, was quite sound when we came. It was just, uh, we just had to fix the roof and, and uh, put the windows back in, etc. When it opened, uh, what, what was the official opening date of, uh, as did you get to cut the ribbon? The official opening, uh, around 1985, when we got the plaque designated here, that was sort of the acceptance, uh, official acceptance, I guess, of of ourselves as a railway station. Right. I should mention we, we now have 11 acres of land elongated. Uh, we were able to buy another six acres after the five I mentioned to you there. So we were very fortunate to be able to do this. We couldn't do it in a large city because of the uh, real estate prices, mm -hmm. taxes, etc. So we're, we're quite fortunate to be able to do this and uh, uh, in Smith Falls. And, and I should point out as well, we've got considerable help directly and indirectly from the town over the years. So they've been, you know, they've been accepted as, as an asset here in town. Right. And uh, so, yeah. Some of the things on display, I see a phone straight in front of us. The um, phone system as it was developed, it, the wires were put up along the railway lines all through the country and they mirrored it. But there are quite a lot of other things on display um, between photographs, like timetables, I would imagine all the paraphernalia appropriate to the time. Yes, I would have to say that, and uh, that's basically what we're, we're trying to create, that uh, transition in history. Yes, fulfill our mandate from that point of view. Um, one, over on the wall I see a big board of engineers and firemen. Explain it to me. Yeah, we, we build ourselves as a real museum in eastern Ontario, as you're aware, but this was in St. Luke Yard, Montreal. That would be uh, in the uh, roundhouse of St. Luke. Uh, where the engineer and fireman, particularly back in steam days, the fireman would, would indicate steam days. When their turn come up, their names would be chalked on the on the uh, list, and if you come in, you could see where you stood on the list. So that was that was something you would see at a big railway terminal, like in Montreal. St. Luke Yard is a big CP terminal. Okay. But CP being big here in Smith Falls, uh, as well as Carl Place earlier on, uh, that 
most of the guys beyond that would be living here in Sioux Falls. So in that sense, we're part of East Ontario. Right, right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, John, thanks a million. We'll take a little break, and we're going to yeah. pick up after well, the break. That sounds good, and I appreciate it. I hope I have given you an accurate uh, portrayal of what oh, yes, it's happening. been. It's fasc- fascinating. Thanks, John. You're listening to At Home and Abroad on Irish Radio Canada, and we've been chatting with John Weir at the Railway Museum of Eastern Ontario. We'll be back after this little piece of music.